Welcome back to Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland and the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light, love, courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore and it is my privilege to bring you this podcast on behalf of Childhood Cancer Ireland, a charity founded by and led by parents of children with cancer and survivors who know that one of the greatest sources of strength for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to families impacted by childhood cancer, as well as the experts who care for our children's health, education and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the pain, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here because you are not alone. Childhood Cancer Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children, adolescents and young adults survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating €4 Euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. In our final episode of this season, we are joined by Louise Quayle, Corporate Relations Manager in Ronald McDonald House. Shortly after Louise pivoted her career to join this charity, which supports families whose children are seriously ill and are hospitalised or undergoing medical treatment at Crumlin Hospital, her then three-year-old son Jimmy was diagnosed with a tumour in his left cheek in 2019. Louise was 16 weeks pregnant with her daughter when Jimmy was diagnosed and together with her husband David and family, the impact of serious illness took on a new understanding. From a planned induction around Jimmy's chemo to being told they had to go to Germany for proton therapy when her baby was just five weeks old to how as a couple they found their new roles, discovered new strengths and leaned into therapy. This episode is how together they fought this cancer diagnosis. Jimmy had 34 rounds of proton therapy and this is all he can ever have in his lifetime. Due his two-year scan the day after we recorded, he is thriving and living his best life. And we all wish that the scan gives only positive and hopeful results. This is kind of weird because we know each other. (laughs) slightly weird yeah slightly weird um louise welcome to gold ribbon conversations this is the final episode in the first season of this year and we both just jumped on a zoom having been put in touch through the powers of childhood cancer ireland and straight away it was like we were in college together (laughs) very weird (laughs) (laughs) and both being like how did you end up here how did you end up here (laughs) It's oh. very, very strange. But tell us how you ended up here. Um, take us right back. You've given me a taster, but take us back to a moment in your life where you knew that what you were doing career-wise wasn't suited and maybe that the universe was redirecting you somewhere else. Yeah. Um. So take it back to having my beautiful little Jimmy in 2015. Um. You know, we were struggling to have a baby. 
and we went down the IVF path, which is in itself a tough journey for anybody. And uh, our gorgeous little boy was born on the 18th of November 2015. Um, I had 11 months off, 11 months of bliss, but equally ready to go back to work. I've always loved working. So I went back to work. Um, but actually, I should say that beforehand, I'd like I had done a, a degree in marketing, which in aid did, did nothing with it. <laughs> did nothing with it. I went traveling um, and decided that I wanted to be a secondary school teacher. So went back and retrained and and did that. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, and then, yeah, I really, I was 27, 28, had to grow up a little bit. And I was like, God, I have to get a mortgage and all that boring stuff you have to do as an adult. Um, and my teaching career just wasn't supporting that. Like I couldn't get uh, a permanent contract and things like that in order to secure a mortgage. So I uh, went into the world of sales. Like really good. Um, I worked for IBM for a number of years and learned so much and met so many amazing people, but ultimately wanted to be a mammy. And thankfully, I had Jimmy in 2015. And when I went back after maternity leave, you know, I was only back a few months and I was just like, oh, this is so not what I want to do. It wasn't flexible. It wasn't fulfilling my life. I definitely wasn't getting any um, self-satisfaction from what I was doing. Um, so I decided one night in the middle of the night, um, no, I need to make a change here. Um, so I sat down with a pen and paper and wrote out all the things I wanted to do on my wish list, but equally all the things I was good at. And fundraising popped off the page. So, uh, and especially the fact that I'd been in the corporate world and really understood that element of business, I was like, why not collide the two together and become a corporate fundraiser? Um, so it was very weird how it happened at the time. Like I had volunteered with the Ronald McDonald House a couple of times through IBM, but then actually totally fell in love with it. Didn't understand what they did and then went in, fell in love with it. Like me and my mom, my sisters and my mother-in-law all went to the weekend and did cooking um, and really just really loved what the whole thing stood for and how it supported families while their children were really sick in hospital. So then a job came up in the Ronald McDonald House uh, two weeks later and I applied for it. Um, I didn't get the job that I applied for because I had no experience in it. But uh, by some stroke of luck, um, they gave me another job and I became the corporate fundraising manager for the Ronald McDonald House. And that was in April of 2018. Um, and then so I'd never been to Crumlin, the hospital itself before. Like, as I said, like I'm a true Northsider. I only would have ever visited Temple Street as a child or when Jimmy might have fallen off a, a couch, nearly broke a leg. and. So I'd never stepped inside Crumlin and then I arrived over there, started in April 2018 and I was only there about a month when my own sister, um, she was having her third little boy in Hollis Street and I had nine missed calls on my phone. I was like, oh no, my dad's dead. There's something not right. Mm. Um, and I rang my sister and she was hysterical saying that they were after rushing her baby. He was due to be discharged on the day and they'd rushed Reen to Crumlin. Um, so I was able to meet them there at the ambulance there and he arrived in the incubator and he was very, very sick. They'd found two really whole, uh, two, two really large holes in his heart. Um, and subsequently, then he was diagnosed with 22Q11, um, also known as the George syndrome. So it's a, it's a genetic condition that he had and heart conditions is kind of part and parcel of this. Um, so he was in Crumlin for the guts of three months. Um, so 
I suppose being in the Ron McDonald house, I thought I was put there to support my sister. Um, you know, I was able to go over in the morning, bring her coffee, hold the baby while she had a shower, bring her lunch, you know, check in on her in the evening time, uh, bring the kids over to the Ronald McDonald house so she could pop out of the ward to give her other two uh, boys a hug. Um, so I really thought that's why I, I was made, I was meant to be in the Ronald McDonald house. So we got reinsorted. We got his little heart fixed, thankfully, in August 2018. And he was doing really, really well. And then in around October, it was around Halloween time, because I remember Jimmy was dressed up and he just wasn't right. He wasn't sleeping well during the night. His behaviour was off. He was quite lethargic. He wasn't in good form. And then up to this point, he was nearly turning three and he was always a really good humoured little fella. And just something was off and we could not get to the bottom of it. So I remember keeping a diary one night and he was awake 27 times in one night. I was like, this is just not right. And every morning, the morning would start with my whole family ringing my phone going, how was last night? Did he sleep? Um, so we like we got in touch with a sleep therapist. We thought it was the night terrors. Um, that wasn't it. We went to a paediatric dentist because um, I was like, maybe his mouth had started to swell slightly, but not enough to make you think there was something really sinister there in any way, shape or form. But I was like, maybe it's a blocked saliva duct or something like that. So we brought him to a paediatric dentist and she was like, no, I it's definitely not a blocked duct or anything like that. But I really think you need to see an ENT specialist. I was like, OK, now we're getting somewhere because we had been in and out to GPs, to Temple Street. They'd sent us home with like, you know, viral infection or an antibiotic. but We really weren't seeing any improvement. And then it was around um, this was going on for months, like banging our heads. I, I remember so many times me and my husband David lying on the bed where he'd be waking up thrashing around the bed in pain like in actual pain and us bawling crying because we couldn't fix it we just didn't know how to fix it um, and then there'd be times where he'd just be playing away and he'd start screaming about a pain in his tongue which was just such an unusual complaint for a three-year-old um, so then fast forward a couple of months of hell and it really was hell at the time the not knowing actually I was there categorically was worse than finding out he had cancer because the not knowing and not knowing how to fix it for me was torturous um, and in the meantime we'd done IVF again we were we found out that we were pregnant which was amazing and uh, we we're going to have our second little child and then March of 2019 came and this this still had snow, it was still snowballing and actually in January of that year uh, we had to put our dog down he was really sick and Jimmy was traumatized by this so we ended up engaging with a, a play specialist a play therapist because we were like maybe it's something to do with the dog and so we really did try everything and we just we nobody was giving us answers and I remember then it was uh, leading up to St Patrick's weekend and myself and David were due to go to a wedding in Belfast his cousin was getting married and I really didn't want to go because I didn't want to leave Jimmy. And uh, equally, I was 15 weeks pregnant. So not drinking at a wedding for me actually has zero appeal. <laughs> um, so but my mom really forced me into it. She was like, if nothing else, go up, skip out the meal and try get some sleep for the night. She was like, please just go up and try sleep. Um, so we did. And when I left, um, we went up and had went went to the wedding and the following morning I got a call from my sister saying look we didn't want to tell you yesterday but we brought Jimmy to Crumlin and I was like why and my mum got on the phone she was like Louise he just he looks like a stroke victim she was like I couldn't 
She was like, there's something not right here. So in my absence, my mom and my sister took her, took him to Crumlin. And they had released him saying that they'd found some sort of, they, what they thought was paramental cellulitis uh, in his face. I was like, okay, so now we have a name on this. Uh, this this could be good. Um, so they sent us home. And then that was on the Monday. Monday was Paddy's Day. And on the Tuesday, the 18th of March, I was in work over in Crumlin in the Ronald McDonald house. And my mother-in-law was minding him. And I rang June and I was like, well, how is he today? She's like, oh, he's, he's still in bed. It's one o'clock in the day. I was like, okay, no. A three-year-old does not stay in bed till one o'clock in the day. So I was like, right. I rang David and I said, well, wherever you are, just stop what you're doing. Get home, get Jimmy and meet me and Amy in Crumlin. So we got over to uh, Crumlin. At that stage, we'd actually already seen a private ENT specialist in the Hermitage called Dr. Peter Lacey. And we were due to actually go into him on that Thursday because um, when, when he did an initial consultation with Jimmy the week prior, sure, white coat syndrome, Jimmy was freaking out. He was like, I'm going to have to put him under anaesthetic to tree, really like analyse what's going on here. And we thought it might have been a simple case of his adenoids or tonsils or something had to come out. But in between all of this happening, my mom had him in Crumlin, then we had him back in Crumlin. I rang Dr. Lacey's secretary saying, look, we're due to be in with you on Thursday to have Jimmy under, under anaesthetic. I'm just giving you a heads up that we've been in Crumlin twice and he's really not been well. And uh, so at that moment, we had been released by um, Crumlin and then Dr. Lacey rang Dr. Russell, the head ENT guy in Crumlin, and said, I need you, there's something not sitting right with me here. I need you to look at this child again. He was like, there's just something not right. So we got a call at 10 o'clock on that Tuesday night to come in at six o'clock on the Wednesday morning for an, another review with the ENT uh, team. And we went in to Crumlin and they did an initial ultrasound on his cheek and they found something. Um, so funny when I think back to that, I don't really, like you don't understand what they're saying to you at the time. Like they were saying, they, they said, we found a mass. And I was like, okay, like you know, what's a mass? And um, between, it just kind of snowballed then. They were like, we've, we've, we found a three centimeter mass and uh, we need... We need him to go for an MRI um, to have a proper look at what's going on. So I was like, OK. So they checked us in and they went up. He, he was checked in for an MRI on the Thursday. And on the Thursday morning, he was up on the operating table um, having his MRI when we were sitting in St. Anne's Ward in Crumlin. And a doctor, Dr. Capra and his team walked in. Now, I had no clue what who Dr. Capra was. I'd, I'd, per David had never heard the word oncologist before. He had no clue what that meant. And uh, I had owned, I was, it was only a term that was recently introduced to me only from dealing with families in the Ronald McDonald house. And uh, we were sitting on the bed and the nurse said, the oncology team are on its way down to you. And I was like, why? I was like, what? And then David was like, who's oncology? What does that mean? I was like, David, I, I was like, and, and in walks Dr. Capra. And he was like, look, I'm, and you know, his, Dr. Capra's mannerism, he's just so lovely and puts you at rest the minute you speak to him. And he had said that he had been up at the, uh, uh, like while Jimmy was under anaesthetic and he'd had a good feel around. And he was like, you know, I really, really always want to be proven wrong. But I know by the feel of what I've just felt, I'm fairly confident Jimmy has a tumour. And I was like, a tumour? 
And I just remember being like, yeah, but 80% of tumors are benign. Like, so, you know, well, he says, get it out of there and we'll be fine. And he was like, again, I really want to be proved wrong, but I know by the feel of it, I'd be 90% sure we're dealing with cancer. And I was like, for a day, but I don't even think spoke a word at that stage. And he was like, he did the usual, you know, we're, we're here to support the family. And then he got up and walked out and we just stood looking at each other and, uh, collapsed onto the ground just couldn't believe it and at the same what was weird was that day I don't know how it happened but I was two weeks late oh I must have been 20 weeks I must have been 22 weeks pregnant because I was two weeks late for my anomaly scan and given Reen's heart condition we didn't know whether that was genetic and Grace's side or or her husband's side. So we were really conscious that that anomaly scan was really important for us to make sure that the, my baby's heart was okay. So next thing I'm in a car driving to Rotunda to get this anomaly scan done as an emergency case. So I rang my mom. I don't I don't really remember much of it, but I, I just remember ringing my mom saying, Mom, um, can you come and get me? David has to stay here with Jimmy and I have to go and get a scan. And Jimmy has cancer. And she was like, what? So she drove and she picked me up and we drove to Rotunda. And then when we got there, we were like brought in straight away to the sonographer. And the sonographer, I remember at the time going, um, you're after been marked as like an emergency case. Is everything all right? Is there anything I need to know? And I was like, my child's just been diagnosed with cancer. And he, she was like, what? Uh, and I was like, yeah today and she was like what so the personographer is bawling her eyes out as she's doing my tummy and I told her about Reen and the funny thing was she actually said to me the whole way Jimmy had said that he was having a sister and her name was going to be Sandra and so it was a running joke that like it was there's no way he was having a brother he was only having a sister and it was Sandra and I had no intentions of finding out what the sex was in the baby because I hadn't found out in Jimmy and I loved the fact that I didn't know my mom was sitting there and the sonographer goes, do you want to know what you're having? And I had told her, I was like, well, apparently Jimmy says it's a girl and it's Sandra. So, you know, I'm sure that's what we're having. And then she was like, do you want to know? And out of nowhere, I was like, Jesus, I need some good news today. And she was like, you're having a Sandra. And she's bawling, Brian. My mom's bawling, Brian. I'm bawling, Brian. I'm like, oh my God, are you sure I'm having a Sandra? I'm like, Jimmy's got me delighted. So we, anyway, we got back to the hospital and Jimmy had come down around from his uh, MRI and obviously desperate to see me. And when I went in, he was like bawling and crying and obviously said nothing to him. So that night um, when everyone cleared out, I slept in the bed with Jimmy um, and I was already quite hefty at that stage. And uh, David was on a mattress on the floor. And uh, when everything had kind of settled down, you know, I turned to David and I was like, David, you won't believe it, but we're having a girl. I'm sure he was bawling his eyes out. Uh, not the fact that it was a girl or a boy. We didn't care. It was more the fact that Jimmy had gotten it right. And we were, it was one thing in the day that we might have been able to make him happy with. You know, like knowing that he was going to have a little sister. Um, and then, sure, treatment kicked in. And I will say when I look back at my time in Crumlin, like we were in a room in St. Anne's with another family just behind a curtain. And it was when I look back on it, like those private moments were just there. 
you know, it, it, it wasn't a great place to be sharing a room when your child's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, and it just it does show you, you know, I suppose the state of the health system at the minute where a family has to take that news and there's another family squashed into a room with them and all the emotions um, that goes with that. But then we did get moved into a room. They they unfortunately didn't have a room ready to start for Jimmy to start chemo in St. John's. So we had to start chemo in St. John's. So obviously it took a few days. He had to get his little Freddie in. And I remember that being a really big deal. But it's funny how you put these things as a big deal in your own head and kids are just amazing. So I remember him going down to get the Freddie inserted and I was up to hide. Oh, I was like pacing the car. I going, how am I going to explain this to a three-year-old? How am I going to get him to not tug at it or pull at it? Or all the anxieties that go with the Freddie. And then he comes down and an hour later we're out where the fish, the fish bowl area is in the hospital. And he looks in the mirror and he sees this Freddie hanging down. He goes, Mom, what's that? And I was like, oh, that's your Freddie. That's to help you get better. And he's like, all right, and heads off. And I was like, <coughs> I was like, oh, my God, he didn't even care. Like, he didn't care. And I was, like, stressed out in my head about it. So the following Friday, we started chemo. Um, and that was a real, uh, God, it was just probably like it's just one of those moments where you're just like oh god you're about to start the unknown and you've no clue what the outcome of this is going to be like I think you're on autopilot up until that point because you're like right we need to get the Freddy done we need to get the MRI done so you're like what do we need to do to you know get things moving and then you see this orange a luminous orange bag come in and you just see the poison for what it is about to be inserted into your child and it's like horrific but equally, you know, it's going to save his life. So you're like, it's weird. You're like, come on, get it into him. Let's get going on this. You don't want to waste another second of his life by not doing it. Um, so we we did the first round. So he was put on. Um, a, a, thankfully, thankfully, we were one of the families that they were like this rhabdomyosarcoma. It turned out he had a seven centimeter tumor. So it was really buried into the back of his uh, left cheek called the infratemporal fossa. Um, so the, the likes of surgery, it was inoperable from the get-go because where your infratemporal fossa is, it's pretty much connected to um, all your senses, your taste, your smell, your touch, everything is connected here in this nervous system and his was buried right in the middle of it. So there was no chance. Uh, they said they even struggled with the biopsy to get the needle in to do the proper biopsy. So we knew from the get-go um, extraction was just never going to happen so we were just praying to god that chemo and uh, the right mix of chemo and radiation would do the job so he to, he to do with a nine month strict protocol and then um we were to look at radiation throughout that and then he'd go on a 12 month maintenance so what we did um the poor child really got every side effect you know he really didn't handle it well. He was so sick. You know, we were only in it about three weeks and the NG tube had to go in. I remember, and actually as a mother, the hard, one of the hardest things for me was controlling his food, like him not eating. Like I'm a feeder, like I'm an absolute feeder. And I used to, the fact that he couldn't eat and he was so sick from it uh, was horrendous. You know, just, I remember, I have a diary, I still have it. And it's honest to God, it's like, three cocoa pops counting calories two two like you know two meanies honestly uh like when you when you look back and it you're just anything you can do to support his system 
um, that's within your control. You just want to be all over it. And it's, uh, it's that, I, that I found very, very difficult. And even when he'd be in as an inpatient doing his chemo, they'd give him a certain steroid and I'd be like, oh, hopefully this will boost him to eat. Um, but it didn't. He really just didn't. He couldn't eat for pretty much a year. So he got 80% of his nutrition and feeds through and his NG tube, which we did at night time. But I do remember it was around his second cycle. Him sitting up in the bed in St. John's and my dad arrived in and he said he wanted a McDonald's. And we were like, what? Will, will you eat a Happy Meal? So my dad flew off to McDonald's, got the Happy Meal and arrived in and he scoffed the whole lot. All of us were like, oh, my God. So as he arrived, it, so he finished it and then he was like, God, I want more. We we're like, you want more? So off my dad goes again to McDonald's, like literally ran to McDonald's, came back and he was like, nah, don't think I'll have it. We were like, okay. But those are the lengths you go to. I remember before my brother driving over, he was coming from Swords over to Crumlin. And this is about 10 o'clock at night and Jimmy decided he wanted an apple. I was like, David, you have to go find me an apple. And he was like, I'm going to find an apple at 10 o'clock at night. I was like, find every spar on the way. Just find me an apple. The child's saying he wants an apple. <laughs> so it's all those silly little things. But uh, I was really lucky in terms of my family was around me all the time. They had a rota of, um, you know, the minute, it, you know, it, it all happens. The, the whole family kicks in and the, the route of the dinners there was dinners dropped to our door every day and that happened for months on end uh which is this kind of a funny story to that i remember like one week three days in a row we'd gotten shepherd's pie and i was like oh, grace i really don't mean to sound ungrateful but i can't eat any more shepherd's pie i'm gonna actually be sick if i see another shepherd's pie she was like right i'm put all on the shepherd's pie <laughs> but um it was just, wonderful, though, how everyone just kind of gangs together and like nobody knows what to do to help. No, but it's no. just like, OK, food, you know, the way yeah. you said there, like you're a feeder. But food has such an association with people being able to demonstrate love. Absolutely. And it's so funny, though, how people, your family are pushed into roles. So like my sister, Michelle, is the feeder. The minute something goes wrong in her life, she has to cook. She's in the kitchen. You'll find her cooking for whoever it is. My other sister is the researcher. So she she goes, she pulled out, I think, every like medical journal to do it, rhabdomyosarcoma. She knew more than the doctors within a day. Do you know, she had just been through the whole thing with Reen. So she was like, right, you need to start looking at your finances. You're domiciliary. You're not going to be able to work. And so she had all that mastered, which was amazing. And then like my mother-in-law, she just like spoils people. So she was like rocking up with like presents and like, for everybody, you know, I didn't need new pajamas, but here she is arriving with like just like and everybody just pulled together. And um, it is like it's a really obviously horrible thing to be faced with a diagnosis. But the love and warmth that you receive through it stays with you forever. And it's really quite incredible. It's something you never, ever forget. I remember before, just before we, we went to Germany and um, like a stranger knocked at my door with money in an envelope now I, I remember being really taken aback by it going god like I don't know how I feel about this but they were like there's a GoFundMe page going and I can't donate online I don't have a bank card but I've heard your story and I remember being like Jesus I don't want to take that like but equally I couldn't but I actually couldn't believe somebody came to knock at my door to help me that didn't even know me it was it's it's really quite incredible 
But anyway, getting back to the the journey. So he he did um, four months of chemo, and then his little sister was born on the thirtieth of July, and on the thirtieth. So even that story is mad alone. So the night before, we were trying to time it so that David could be at the birth of Phoebe, and that's really hard to do when you have a child that is sick. So for the first four months. Jimmy pretty much, he was neutropenic every week. He temperatures, we literally spent four months in Crumlin with very little home time because he was so sick. And he, he'd he uh, developed the mucositis really badly in his mouth. And like, he was just so, so weak and so ill. And um, so by, I, I really wanted David to not miss the birth of Phoebe, but equally I couldn't stand anybody else being with Jimmy except his dad, if I had to go and have the baby. So we kind of had a plan where we trained. So he would have been on about nine meds a day that we had to, you know, give at home. And we had a big whiteboard. So we had my two sisters, my mom and David's mom, all trained up to give him all the anti-sickness and do all that. And I had spoke to Rotunda, told him the situation. I was like, I basically have to have Phoebe on the 30th of July. If I don't have her then, so she would have been four days early. I was like, if I don't have her her dad's not going to be at the birth. I'm going to be stressed out of my head. So I really need, and of course, they were nothing but lovely and did what we needed them to do. So we, the night beforehand, um, the bags were packed. He was due, David was due to tr- put, throw me off at Rotunda at six o'clock in the morning. And my sister, Grace, was going to come and sit with me for the day, get kind of the hard labour bit done, get induced, see how it all kicked off. And then when we knew we were kind of ready to go, we put the call into David and David would rush then to the hospital and be there for the labour. So um, my mom and June, my mother-in-law and my other sister, they all kind of had all the kids in the house here. So basically, Jimmy, thankfully, thankfully, was in good form that day. He'd no temperatures and they were all having like basically a big party in my house while I went in to have uh, the baby. So me and Grace went in. But the night before is the strangest thing. Jimmy just, he, he was on his feeding pump all throughout the night. And out of nowhere, we heard the alarm going off. So David jumped up and went in and the NG tube had just dislodged and the milk was all over the bed. And we were like, that's never happened before. And so this was at about three o'clock in the morning and David had to drop me to Rotunda for six. So we rang one of the nurses that we knew really well. And we were like, oh my God, the NG's after coming out. Louise has to be in Rotunda at six. And there's a bit of a process because you have to get the bloods checked and all that sort of thing in order to be able for the NG tube to go back in. And they were like, get over here. We'll get it done now. I was like, "Okay." so we rushed over. David was in and back within an hour. They were so kind to us. Got Jimmy back, got him sorted. And then David threw me off uh, into the rotunda with my sister. And thankfully, he did make it to the birth. And he was there probably for about two hours and then was like, I have to get back to Jimmy. So legged it again. And we did get released. Uh, I think it was the day after. I didn't spend too much uh, time in hospital because I was so eager to get back to him. But it was funny as we left. Um, so David, the morning David was coming to collect me. Um, he said, well, I bring Jimmy in to let me meet his sister. And I was a bit cautious because with infection control, I really didn't want anybody around him. But I was like, it'd be really special for us, the four of us to walk out of Rotunda together. Um, so we came in and I have this picture where Jimmy got up into the bed in Rotunda and cuddled Phoebe and the two of them are fast asleep in the bed in Rotunda. And I have that picture on my wall. I look at it all the time. But he actually um, 
We got a call then while we were leaving the rotunda saying, we just got Jimmy's bloods back. He needs a transfusion. You need to get over to Crumlin straight away. So like that again, into the car, (laughs) baby in the car seat, David drove home, literally threw us into the house, me and Phoebe, and was straight to Crumlin, where Jimmy then had to have a transfusion straight away because his bloods were so low. But like, you look back and it's Mm. like, we we did laugh at the time going, you couldn't write this like. Um, So then skip forward five days and Jimmy was in having chemo and we got the call. We have to go to Germany. And I thankfully, I'd, I'd already decided I wasn't going to breastfeed because I knew I'd need support at some stage to with the baby and all that. So um, we agreed to leave the baby. We sure had no passport. Where do you even get a passport for a five day old baby? So uh, we left the baby with my mom and my mother-in-law and myself, Dave and Jimmy headed over to Germany um, for our it's like a two day consultation. They have to get fitted for their proton mask and they go under anesthetic. It's basically like a, a whole health check on their system before they're ready to go. And we'd obviously um, been through numerous conversations with Crumlin in terms of was brachytherapy versus proton therapy the right route for him. And unfortunately, he wasn't eligible for brachy based on where his tumour was. So we went with the protons um, and flew into Dusseldorf and got to Essen. But the minute, um, actually, the minute we got, we, we heard that we, we were given the green light for Essen. I'd already engaged with John from the Gavin Glynn Foundation because I'd heard about it. His son, unfortunately, had passed away the same cancer that Jimmy had. Um, and I'd spoke to John a number of times, um, just about everything in general. And he was like, the minute you know, just ring me and leave everything else up to me. Um, so I rang John and literally he was like, OK, when do you need to be there? Told him. He's like, all I need from you is a copy of your passports. That's it. Leave everything else to me. And it was like an incredible support like it really was so we um I'd sent him pictures of our passports and within you know a few hours the flights were booked the transfers were booked the accommodation was booked everything was sorted literally within only a few hours so we got over there um did the consultation got back I remember even like panicking trying to find somebody in the passport office to try help us because Jimmy's passport was out and now he was bald with an NG tube. So it's not, you need a hospital letter to support why he has an NG tube in order to get a passport. So really everything was against the clock. And then we had to also consider we're going to be there for two months. We need all of his medication, all of his feeds. So we had to get everything shipped over to Germany and then even trying to get the prescriptions and everything. So there's a huge amount of work that goes on in the background in order to make sure that when you arrive there, you have everything that you need. Um, and you're always going to forget something, which we did. So I think it was we left on the 30th of August and we flew to Essen. And I'm really fortunate. My older sister's fluent in German. So she came with us. So she was able to like navigate around Essen City and talk to people and figure out where everything was. And she stayed with us for the first three nights to just help us settle in and try um figure it all out. And equally... What they had done was my sisters had kickstarted a GoFundMe page. And I'll tell you the reason I mentioned that is because what they did with those funds was they booked everybody's flights. So at no stage in two months were we on our own. The four of us were there constantly, but we had 
um, rotation of family coming to us all the time to either mind the baby or even distract us, like go out and have a bite to eat or do something to try and make the, the time as good as it could be. So when we got to Essen, the clinic itself, like so clinical, as you can imagine, German, it's efficient and it's a, but equally as strange as it sounds, like we had such a lovely time in Germany because now <laughs> I, I had approached our oncologist and I said, I really don't want Jimmy to do chemo in conjunction with radiation while in Germany. Um, that's not the done thing. It's definitely not standard that you would do that and break the chemo cycle. But given how horrifically sick he had been through the first four months, I was like, put 33 rounds of proton on top of that. Like, and a brand new baby. Like, I just, not, it's just not going to end well. And I was like, I was fairly confident that he wouldn't have been able to successfully complete all of his radiation had he have actually done chemo at the same time because he'd have been too sick in hospital. So we, um, with a, a bit of debate going back and forth, agree and support our decision to hold off on the chemo for the two months that we were there, um, which was amazing because he wasn't neutropenic. His bloods weren't being hit. Um, and like we used to go in every day, we'd get our time, we'd go in, he'd go under anesthetic Monday to Friday, he'd do his 20 minutes of proton, then, you know, it'd take an hour for him to come around and we'd head off and do loads of fun stuff because we weren't, we didn't have like infection control as big a threat as it would be when he's doing chemotherapy. So like we went to Legoland, we went to Marine World, we went to Gruga Park every day and there was a little horse called Jimmy. He used to horse ride every every day after he did his his radiation like the hardest part of actually being abroad was the, the fasting the fasting we found really hard because he had to fast every night and if you got an appointment at two in the day that's a very long time to expect a child of four to fast and as a rule we fasted every time he did so like we just felt it wasn't fair, even behind his back or slide or on the slide eat while he wasn't eating. So we actually found the fasting practical element of it really, really tough. And then obviously it's there's an accumulative effect. So we had his first proton and then come uh, we got to the halfway point, which was four weeks. And then it was around the six weeks marks. So we really started to see uh, like a difference in him in terms of like, you know, he was going in getting a laser on the same spot every day. His face was like burnt to hell like and he was much weaker much more tired and but by the time the eighth week came and the 34th round of proton was administered we were so delighted <laughs> to be going home and uh, I remember my mum and dad coming in and flying in and David's mum and dad and we were all there to ring the bell which was such um, a special day and as well as that like I couldn't go on this without acknowledging the other families that were there with us while we were there there was four other Irish families and you know you're all in the same boat and all of our kids were in and around the same age and um, so we developed such lovely friendships out of that now really ah, oh, like really sad to say that like some of them didn't make it and uh and I'm still friends with their moms today and like we all came through it together and that was the worst part, actually. Germany for me uh, and for Jimmy, if you ask me about it, there's such lovely memories. And we created a really special time out of something that was really bad.
But the worst part was getting to know those families and unfortunately them not being as lucky as we were to to receive, you know, or, or to be as successful as we were in terms of the treatment. That was really, really hard. Um, but then we came home from Germany and we kick-started the chemo again. At this stage, he'd... Um, one of the one of the real like toxic drugs had been taken out of the protocol at this stage, so it did lighten a little bit. Like the side effects definitely did lighten, and actually, I really think Phoebe lightened everything. Mm-hmm. So before Phoebe came along, I remember loads of people saying, "Jesus, how did you do like do it with a baby, or how did you do it being pregnant?" But actually, it was quite the opposite. Like Phoebe came at a time where we were so focused on Jimmy and cancer and he was so sick and then she arrived and kind of lightened everything and instead of talking about cancer and chemo we were talking about bottles and nappies and you know it gave Jimmy a really positive focus like he'd come bailing out of um the proton center dying to see his little sister um which was a really a real like we actually have these little Mr. Men pictures. Jimmy's Mr. Strong, obviously, and Jimmy's little or Phoebe's little Miss Sunshine. And she really was like uh, such sunshine in a time that was really, really dark. And then so we finished chemo just before Christmas, which was amazing. Literally, I think three days before Christmas, uh, the hardcore chemo as we talk. And then he started on maintenance chemotherapy and he did that for 12 months. And I do remember like an expression that people used to say and used to drive me mad. Oh, is he only on the maintenance now? I'm like, he's still having chemotherapy. There's no only about it. You know, you go from like the hardcore protocol to chemotherapy. They still have to be in hospital once a week. They still have to have oral chemo at home. They still have to have anti-sickness. They still have to have pain relief. I was like, there's a huge amount um, involved from a maintenance chemo perspective. And actually, like with the the original chemotherapy protocol, 90% of that is done in the hospital and by the medical professionals. The maintenance bit is put on the parents' shoulders and there's a huge wait for you know a, a much longer period of time where you have, you're have you in charge of everything. And I'm not a nurse. My husband's not a doctor. But the maintenance I actually found just as hard as, as the other part. Um, and I, one thing that I suppose made it really, I should... I should say it about David. David was trained up to clean the Freddy. So that's a big deal for all the children, you know, to go in every week and have uh, their their Fred their Freddy changed, the patches changed. There's a huge amount involved in it and there's quite a high risk of infection. So you have to nail it and you have to do it really well. And like, I suppose all throughout the way, David even taken on that task. I remember the first time he did it, we nearly divorced each other over it. I was like, you know, standing over him, are you doing that right? And he's like, shut up, two of us killing each other. But, you know, it's all those little things that if you can take them away, if you can, if you can take any of the little anxieties away from your child, it really does go a long way in terms, in terms of making the whole process a little bit easier. So then he did his maintenance for 12 months and we finished up in March of. 20 or uh, 21 so as I said Sinead it's ironic that I'm doing this now given tomorrow we're in Crumlin for his two-year post-treatment scan and I do remember two years ago being like I really wish I could fast forward my life for two years because 
that's a real crucial time in terms of like there's a very high risk of relapse and it's a very unnerving time for parents especially around every scan that you have to do so we're there and it's come around a lot quicker than I would have thought and um we'll be in there tomorrow doing our scan but please god really positive results which we continue to see constantly which is great how has he been because that's it's taken you know he has taken a lot of medication he has taken a lot of chemo he's taken the maximum amount of proton that you could yeah. ever have in a life yeah uh, do you know what he's absolutely great you know there's no doubt about it he will have his challenges as he grows up you know the I find this bit hard to wrap my own head around that you know people to say to you is he cured is that it and I'm like no cancer lasts a lifetime unfortunately and treatment lasts a lifetime you know there's going to be he'll, he'll definitely have his challenges to the extent of which we don't know um all of which I'm sure we can overcome and I'm not nervous about. But even, you know, the, the simple things of like proton, like radiation completely stops growth. It doesn't just stunt it, it completely stops it. So at some point, his little face is going to start growing on one side and won't be growing on the other, which I'm sure will have its complications. But look, he's here and he's alive and he's living his best life. And he really is. It, uh, we, we've just completed a 12-week session of um, play therapy just to iron out any little anxieties that he might have had around his body or his confidence you know after being through and the play specialist we had a wrap-up session two weeks ago and she was like this lad's living his best life <laughs> she was like I really I'm not concerned at all so like I me and me and Dave were only talking about this last week saying you know for such a long time he was three when he was diagnosed and he was near six when he stopped, uh, when he finished treatment. And now he's seven. So for a long time, it was half his life, half his little life um, was so consumed by cancer and everything to go along with it. But now he's getting bigger and we're coming out of the halfway mark. And I really just hope, I, I want to move to a point where it's only a very, very small part of his life and his story. Um, equally a very important one. But yeah, he's he's doing great. Thankfully. Childhood Cancer Ireland knows that it can take a long time for parents to heal from the trauma that a childhood cancer diagnosis brings. You may leave the experience feeling stuck, in high alert mode, and disconnected from your old life and relationships. Our new parent workshops, delivered by senior clinical psychologist Dr. Mairead Brennan, and child and adolescent psychotherapist Debbie Cullinan have been created to help you process the experience and begin to take steps forward. Our day-long workshops are happening around Ireland this year with refreshments and lunch provided and we can also provide financial assistance with travel costs. To find out more about our free workshops visit childhoodcancer.ie or find the link in our show notes. I always remember, like, if somebody was to ask me to think back to college and to describe your mindset, it was always like you cut through the overthinking. Like if there was loads of discussion back and forth about something, you're like, lads, just just do this, this and this. Go. <laughs> like, and, and we trust me, I think you'll remember the project I'm talking about. We needed that from you. We needed that from you. But it seems like that's just 
that's the mindset you took on. You were like, we just do this and then we do this and we do this and we just go. We just keep going. Yeah, I think most parents would say the same, though. You know, you can you, you focus on what you can control and what you can't. I do remember, um, you know, going back and forth with second opinions and Jane Pearce saying to me, will you just let me focus on the medical stuff? Can you focus on being a mammy? <laughs> I remember being like, OK, that's what I need to do. And I was like, what is being a mammy? Getting them to go to the toilet every day, getting them to eat as much as they can getting them to try smile, like stand on my head to make them laugh once a day. And if I can do that, um, and it's actually really funny. It's like rude, but funny. Like every day when you came in, if if he gave you the middle finger, that was like a really good sign that he was having the crack, that he was in good form. And I remember before one of the doctors coming into the hospital room and he's there on the iPad, like, thank God for an iPad. I remember before I've been like in a restaurant and watching parents and their two kids sitting on iPads gone, well, I'll never be that parent. <laughs> and then, you know, the cancer comes into your life. And even if it hadn't, I'm sure I would have changed my pers- my uh, attitude anyway. But I remember him, like he has the iPad and the doctor came in and he's sticking the finger up behind the iPad at the doctor. And I'm going, oh my God, I'm like secretly delighted. That was his way of telling us, oh, there's a bit of cheekiness here and we're having the crack today, which was, uh, we did everything we could to see that middle finger every day, <laughs> as terrible as that sounds as a parent. But um, what yeah. have you done? That's how to help him through. But what have you done to process that? Because I know I know we can talk about a mindset of you just have to keep going. And that's, you know, there's no choice but to. But in the same breath, you know, you're talking about leaving hospital with a newborn and you have to get straight back into Crumlin and you have to go straight here and you're straight there and she brought so much light and she brought so much happiness and she brought so much distraction but was there ever a point in the last few years where you could just reflect and go how how did we get through that how can I now recharge how can I now support myself for what's to come like yeah and I did engage in counseling so I went through ARC um, which we did, you know, Jimmy just did his play therapy there as well. I did counselling through work and I really pushed it on my husband to do it as well. And he did it and found it amazing. And not actually, not at a time where I felt I needed it, but at a time where I was like, this could hit me two years down the road. And if we're after getting through treatment and we're two years down the road, I don't want this coming into my life again. I want to actually kind of future proof my mental health around it. Um, and that's what we did. And plus, me and David were struggling as a couple in terms of like, you know, it's, people forget about the little things in terms of for a year, David slept in with Jimmy because he was afraid of the NG tube being wrapped around his neck. I slept with the baby to feed her during the night. And it comes to a point then where you're like, God, do we have to get back into bed together? Mm-hmm. I remember the first night we did, I was lying there and I was like, I feel like I'm in bed with my brother. This is so <laughs> weird. <laughs> But it's those little things like as a couple, you need counselling because, mm-hmm. you know, you're relying. We were really fortunate that two of us were off for the guts of two years. And, you know, we were such a team and he was it was very 50 50. He carried the load as much as I did. And where I was strong, he was weak and vice versa. Like I couldn't I see those NG tubes. He went into hospital and did all the heavy lift and practical stuff. 
I did everything else at home. Do you know, we really did. We really found our comfort zone. But in terms of actually how we got through it, it was through talking. So both of us went to counselling. And I remember giving out hell about him in one of the counselling sessions. And she was like, have you ever heard? Have you ever? So she gave us this exercise where once a week you to sit down and give each other 15 minutes, five minutes for Louise time, five minutes for David time and five minutes as a couple. And I remember us going, right, and like, you know, sitting down with a cup of tea directly, no distractions, phones away, television off. And I was like, right, tell me about your week, what was good, what was bad. Um, and you're, you, ha- you kind of both had to already agree that you weren't going to argue about, you weren't allowed to be defensive. So what did, what was annoying me this week that you did? And you're not allowed to come back saying, well, and, but you know what? That was going to counselling. And us having those, they were called check-ins, 15-minute check-ins once a week. We used to do it every Friday um, night where we just turn off the television, have a cup of tea and have a 15-minute check-in. And that changed everything for us in terms of like how we were as a couple, how we were as Louise. I started running again and we like we really made time to just get out and do things. I was like, we can't just be stuck in the house. And um, so running for me was a huge thing in terms of even just a half an hour I started the couch to 5k and I just kept going and going with it. And even to this day now, we're like three years on, like running for me. If I'm feeling in any way, like in my head, not right, I get out and run and I feel brilliant for it. But I think counselling is an app. Whether you think you need it or you don't need it, you absolutely do. And it's Tomorrow. so important. Tomorrow's a big day. It is. Do you think yeah. Jimmy knows what tomorrow means? So Jimmy this morning was told he's going for a scan tomorrow and all he cares about is being allowed to be on a switch all day long. He loves magic milk. He loves the sensation. When you say to him, what do you feel like when you get your magic milk? He goes, oh, he loves it. So strange. <laughs> so it's uh, crumbling for him, funny enough, has, has always been like, it's never been a place where he'd be afraid or nervous to go into. Um, I think because the staff go above and beyond to really make him feel welcome and they're always just so lovely to us he gets to eat as much crap as he wants once he's done with the fasting bit um he can watch what he likes on youtube all the rules are broken uh when we go to crumlin and he's always he always gets his mcdonald's on the way home which he on the way home which he absolutely loves so it's always been a positive thing for him and the fact that like he's going to anesthetic he doesn't ever really remember any of the bad stuff because he's not conscious for it I have asked a couple of times, is he ready to do the scan without the anaesthetic? Um, because I know I've discussed that with uh, Dr. Ferris a number of times, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Let's keep him as innocent for as long as he can. It started with you being in Ronald McDonald House. Has it changed your attitude for what these charities are doing and what they're providing for families? Yeah, so I think this is really important to highlight. It's not just... Like a lot of charities you never hear of until unfortunately you need to use their services. Um, and I always say the expression, you know, they say it takes a child to, uh, it takes a village to raise a child, but it really does take a community to heal one. And we were touched by so many incredible charities along the way. So, you know, even from, so the, obviously the Gavin, the Ronald McDonald House, sure, I stayed ironically in the Ronald McDonald House for the two weeks when Jimmy was diagnosed and they have they are very much part of my family you know um 
the, the, the management there, my colleagues, everybody was beyond kind to me when uh, when Jimmy was sick and my whole family. And then you have the Gavin Glynn Foundation. We couldn't have done Germany, hands down, could not have done Germany without John um, and the team and Jane. And then you have the simple things like there's a charity called Hand in Hand. They had cleaners in my house once, uh, once every two weeks. Just take that hassle away from you. A cleaner came in and cleaned the house twice. They had play access to play therapy, which Jimmy did, did online throughout COVID. Then you have ARC where you get all your counselling service. I had reflexology there. They do online yoga classes. Um, like there's just so many wonderful charities out there. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is people don't know about them. Like one one thing that I, I found really um, strange above anything else is that you're not told about these charities when your child is diagnosed. Yeah, you, you really do have to go looking for them. Um, and so that's something that like I try to do a, a bit more with the Ron McDonald House. You know, we started, you know, when, when families come into us looking at the Cleanest Foundation, how to better financially support families and there's there's just such an amazing amazing network of charities and you really cannot get through this process without the 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 help and support of everything that they do it's incredible you were right to be redirected (laughs) well look (laughs) to find yourself there though like what the, what what you know now have experienced and what you can bring to that role and how you can help shape what it is that you know that's why Childhood Cancer Ireland was created. It was created by parents who have gone through this and now know what other parents need when they're beginning that journey. Like it is a weird one now in my role. So obviously stepping back into the Ronald McDonald House, going back to work after Jimmy being sick. I remember having a coffee with my boss Joe and him saying it's going to be too close to the bone. Mm. Like, I'm a little bit worried for you. And I was like, no, I like, you know, I was cheeky and I didn't act like a jockey beforehand, but it's even worse now in terms of, <laughs> you know, I'm so driven and empowered by what I do that I absolutely love it. But equally, I'm always so conscious to not compare war stories ever. And there's there'd be a, a lot of parents and families that I meet that I wouldn't dare share my story with because... When your child is sick, your child is the sickest child in the world and all you care about is your child. And I know that sounds really harsh and unusual, but I do remember when Jimmy got sick, out of the goodness of people's heart, they wanted me to talk to everybody who they knew who had a child with cancer. Yeah. And I didn't want to talk to anybody because they weren't my Jimmy and they weren't they weren't going to go through the same journey. And everybody's journey is so different. And I'm so sensitive to that. So like sometimes joe will say there's a mom down there she's really struggling with anti-sickness or something do you think you'd and i'd be like if it's appropriate to do it but one thing i'm a big thing on is not comparing war stories because everybody's child is the most important child in their parents eyes um and no no story is uh easier or harder than the next i'm so conscious of that in my role now at the minute and we're getting fundraising in yes well, yeah, no money, no mission. <laughs> like I was asked to uh, talk at our gala ball this November, just gone, and there was like four hundred people in the room, and it was really weird because they've they would have known me, and then I went off for a while, but mm. nobody really know why I went knew why I went off. And then I came back, and uh, 
I got up and I told my own personal story and everybody in the room, well, most of them would not have had a clue and were quite shocked. And I remember one of our corporate partners coming up to me and goes, ah, how it all makes sense. You're absolutely mad. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> oh, keep doing what you're doing. But tomorrow is an important day. Um I hope it goes so well for you. I hope this is the end. I hope this experience, the only legacy it leaves behind is, as you said, that jockey's neck that you keep getting whatever money and mission in to make <laughs> to make Ronald McDonald House even more supportive. I can't believe it happened to you. I can't believe that we just switched on Zoom and there you are. It's 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 a funny oh, yeah. thing though when you hear like what happens to other people in their lives and that's I suppose again the power of the podcast that's why people want to listen because it is so hard to talk but it can be a source of comfort when you just need to hear that somebody else has been through something and somebody else got through something and somebody else has this positive story to tell not discounting how incredibly hard it was but that you are here now you are at the two-year mark that people rallied and you got there and I suppose a message to lean into that to not have to go through it and struggle to you know I love that piece where you said like this wouldn't have happened if not for these people and this wouldn't have happened if not for that charity lean into those that do exist and are there to help and if you don't know who can help talk to like Childhood Cancer Ireland who might be able yeah. to redirect you in to where yeah. you need the help but don't do it alone. And equally always like take the help so yeah. some people find it really hard for somebody to come in and clean their house or for even family members to drop dinners take it all take mm-hmm. it all and like I say I say that honestly I took it all and like you know <laughs> I do remember as true as God beforehand ringing my sister to the point where I her one day and I was like she's like is there anything you need Jimmy was after he was after in the hospital for a 12 day stint we just couldn't get him out of neutropenia and Michelle rings me and she's like is there anything you need I said you know what my grass really needs to be cut (laughs) right that's true as God and she's like right now she only had two young kids herself she's like I'll get it sorted don't worry so she rings my other sister now I only found this out a few months ago she rings my other sister and Grace is like get a grip she's like own grass cut today right so now we have a thing where I'm like if, if anything goes down I'm like Michelle you know I'd always cut your grass <laughs> but I was actually like so lucky in terms of like those are the lens that people went to to support us and I, I do I'm conscious that not everybody um has the support that I did so we 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 got lucky in terms of like it was only easy because of everybody we had around us Oh, thanks a million for joining us on the podcast. And I honestly, and I mean this, I'm going to be thinking of you all day tomorrow. And I really hope those results go well. Thank you. It was so lovely to see you. Thank you for listening to this Gold Ribbon Conversation. There are more Gold Ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website, childhoodcancer.ie and you'll find a link in our show notes. 
If you can, we would love you to share this podcast across social media using hashtag Goal Driven Conversations as it can help more families to discover this show. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and sound production by Alan Breslin.